Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for August 6th, 2020, the Stop Counting Now edition. I am David Plotz of Business Insider from Washington, D.C. I am joined from New York City, Manhattan, by CBS's 60 Minutes, John Dickerson, author of The Hardest Job in the World. Hello, John Dickerson. Hello, David. And from, not from New Haven, but from somewhere else that starts with a new and has a ha in it, Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School. Hello, Emily. It is a funny thing about going to New Hampshire for me. Hello. Yeah, going to New Hampshire doesn't provide a lot of um, different alphabet. But it's very lovely here, and I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for having me, New Hampshire. On today's GabFest, can the school's fiasco be averted? What about the coming vaccine shambles? We will talk to former Obama Homeland Security official Juliet Kayam about whether we can do anything about these twin possible problems, twin disasters. Then the census will stop data collection in the field on September 30th, a full month earlier than they planned, than they announced, even though 40% of households at the moment are uncounted. Is there any way this is not going to be a disaster? And then what is going on in the presidential campaign? And will Joe Biden's strategy of not doing any door-to-door campaigning or having his people do any door-to-door campaigning actually work. Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. The census is heading for disaster. This week, the Census Bureau announced it will cut short by a full month its field data collection. And to put it another way, they had planned for 10 weeks more of field data collection. And instead, they announced kind of on the spur of the moment that they're only going to do six weeks of field data collection. And in those six weeks, they have to collect information from about 60 million households that have not yet responded to the mailed survey. It is hard to see, Emily, how this is not going to be a disaster. But before you explain how it's going to be a disaster, talk about the change in timing and why why it is that we don't have an extended census this year, despite the pandemic and despite the fact that everyone who has looked at this thinks, wow, we need an extended census. Can I interject, Emily? Can you raise the stakes for us before you answer those questions and explain why this matters? So the census determines political power for the ensuing decade and also how we allot our tax money. When Congress um, approves the census, it approves the mechanism for deciding where everybody lives for the purposes of apportionment. That means redistricting for both Congress and state legislatures. Huge deal. It also determines which communities get how much money based on population. So there's billions of dollars at stake and in some ways, you know, on the margins, control of state legislatures and of Congress. It did seem to everyone like we needed more time to complete the census this year. Obviously, the pandemic has been really disruptive, made it very difficult to do door knocking. And also a lot of people have moved, which makes them harder to find. So the Census Bureau had asked for more time, had asked to report out the results in April 2021 instead of at the end of this year. And census officials in various appearances in the last few months have made it clear that it is too late to finish the census in a complete and competent matter if they don't have this extension until the end of October rather than the end of September. 
However, the Census Bureau has two recent high-up political appointees from the Trump administration. And I think what we're seeing here is the increasing willingness and skill at using big federal agencies to do the bidding of political appointees in the Trump administration who want to bend these big tasks of government to particular ends. And what we're seeing here is um, a real push not to count undocumented people in the census, even though we have always counted every person, not every citizen since the founding. Emily, you, you've already you've raised some of these issues. It seems to me they're actually a whole basket of issues. So there is the changing timing, to, which just gums up uh, the data collection because they're so far behind. They're so much further behind where they were in 2010. There's so much more to do and people are so disruptive. And so everyone is going to get undercounted. Then there's a second issue, which is related, but I don't think it's quite the same, which is that the president tried to stick a census question in this census. The Supreme Court shot him down. But instead, what he's now doing is he's essentially ordered the Commerce Department to try to disaggregate immigrants from citizens and then within immigrants disaggregate documented and undocumented immigrants and and seems to be planning to use this kludgy unplanned separating mechanism to try to shape apportionment in 2021. Those two issues seem somewhat different. They all, they, I think they stem from the same thing you're talking about, which, which, which is this desire to use or this, this plan to use uh, the census to advance political ends in ways that it maybe hasn't been used before. John, is that your read on it? Yeah. I mean, I think that's part of it. I think also, and this is a, um, this is maybe a weakness of mine. I just see it as a an election year turf fight, which is by which I mean this. The president is doesn't want to be talking about the three big challenges he faces on COVID, the economy and race relations. So he wants to keep getting in fights about immigration because that's his strategy and that's where he feels like he does better. And so this is just another way to get to initiate a fight about counting undocumented uh, immigrants and uh, try to wrap the you know public conversation in that for some period of time because he thinks that makes that that, that works well for him and may, and puts Democrats in a bad position of looking like they're defending um, undocumented immigrants. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. It's just that if the Census Bureau screws up the census, it causes such. And I know you're not arguing that the outcome and the consequences don't matter. You're just pointing out this additional political aspect of it. Yeah, yeah. And I and but 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 what you point out is right. And and I always hate when people say, well, what here's the positioning. But I but I mean, I think that is what's at um, at stake here. Well, it's while like we both keep our, hand. Yeah, it's both hands. What, yeah. What's the uh, what's the reason to assume there? So so according to estimates, there are about 60 million households that have not been counted. Uh, and there's now about six weeks to try to reach them with door knocking and other methods and and big PR campaigns. What's the reason to assume that that is politically beneficial to Republicans, Emily? I mean, 
It's a mixed bag, actually. So we know that the people who are hardest to count tend to be disproportionately people of color, low-income people, rural people um, this happens to. And in particular, we worry about immigrants and undocumented immigrants because they have lots of reasons not to trust the government and to worry about giving over their personal information, especially in a census where the Trump administration has been so clearly hostile to their interests. So that's the part that makes you just worry about fairness and these folks in particular. It's also true, though, that states that will tend to lose representation from an apportionment that miscounts or doesn't count immigrants are Texas and Florida, as well as a state like California. So you have Marco Rubio, the senator from Florida, saying, hey, wait a second, this is not necessarily an advantage to us. There's another sort of wrinkle to this, which is that if the census gets to the end of September and they know they have a big undercount and they can see where households are, they do this thing called yes. imputation. Right? Are you glad? I want I wanted <laughs> I someone I, to talk about imputation. I'm so excited. So first of all, the census has to count everybody. They're not allowed to use statistical methods to estimate where people are for the most part. That's been like intensely litigated. You could argue it's super inefficient and we shouldn't do it this way, but that's what the Constitution says. So the last time around They use this method of imputing where people live and who they are to account for about 1% of the population. This time, it could be much higher. It could be 5%. It could be even higher than that. The problem with imputation is that it's not necessarily accurate. So imagine you have a neighborhood and you figure that 50% of the people there are Latino. And it turns out, actually, it was like 80%. Well, then you've just really undercounted a group of people in a way that can matter a lot for the Voting Rights Act, which is another part of how we do apportionment. We take into account people's race and ethnicity for the purposes of making sure that we don't dilute their power as voters. In certain districts, they're supposed to be able to elect their candidates of choice. And so, you know, you have this question, do you need it to be 55% of eligible voters to make sure that you are preserving? serving some aspect of their political power, or should it be 52% or 60%? These are these intensely fought battles over redistricting. If we're just wrong about the number of people who are Black or Latino um, in a certain place, then that throws off those calculations. And that could also be a problem for those groups of people's representation. Yeah. it's uh, How many people are coming for dinner? Oh, I don't know, three. And then it turns out 30 come. I mean, you just, it's the allocation of resources can be wildly off and then the ability to fight for more resources resources will then equally be off because the representation was determined by the original miscount. Exactly. And I think especially big cities like Houston, where you have, you know, there's billions of dollars at stake in these population counts. And so for local officials, this is like truly scary. I want to talk about this attempt to segregate people into categories, citizen documented immigrant, undocumented immigrant. If you were undocumented, John or Emily, would you participate in the census? I would not. I would not trust this government not to identify me by this information. Historically, census data has been pretty well protected, but not always. It was used during World War II to identify Japanese Americans and to target them for for concentration camps. So I think if I were I think if I were an undocumented 
person living in this country, I would be very hesitant to participate. So that's a, the first question, whether, whether you guys think there's undocumented people should feel safe participating. I'm with you. I mean, it wouldn't even have to have an administration that has a particular animus towards them because it would just be, you know, what you're doing is outside the law and information given to anyone, even to a credit card company, is going to come back and be public somehow. I mean, you know, in other words, there's a leakiness of information in all public life. So I would think that would contribute to reluctance as well. So I just I find this like terrifying to listen to because um, while you're talking about something that's a total reality, um, we really need to persuade undocumented people that it is safe to fill out the census. And you're right about that breach um, during World War II, David. It's also true that since the 1950s, it has been a crime to um, expose census data, to reveal it, to misuse it, even within the government. And so we have really strong protections that should make people feel more confident about filling out these documents um, than either of you just said. Though I, th- I think we have seen, Emily, though, that things that were crimes in previous administrations, things that are currently crimes, are being done by the Trump administration, and they are not being punished for it. So- like, I don't I don't know that I would uh, that would reassure me. I think you're of course, you're right. And of course, as 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 Americans and as people who wish undocumented people to to receive the services that they deserve, we should want undocumented people to participate in the census. I'm just saying that as a as a matter of like safety, personal safety at this time, it seems really a terribly hard case to make because of how malevolent the Trump administration has been. I mean, it's also true that they're taking a lot of steps to try to anonymize the data to make sure that you can't track down individual people, not for reasons related to being undocumented, just generally that's an important value in the census. I mean, I think the other thing is, like so much else, this is at stake in this election. So, you know, it is possible that um, the census data will be reported to Congress before the new president or the continuing president takes office in January. It is also true that these questions of how census data will be used and interpreted could be up to a Biden administration instead of the Trump administration. Um, I want to hit one other question about this, which I think we've talked about before, and I feel like I have a different, that I have a hold a abhorrent view, and I'm just trying to remember why my view is abhorrent. I don't understand <laughs> what is wrong intellectually with excluding undocumented from the apportionment count. I do not, so, I really don't get that. I, I, it seems to me like the, that I understand that, uh, you know, representatives have an obligation to, to serve the people in their district, and those include citizens and non-citizens alike. People who are living in the country in an undocumented way, it's not clear to me why they are to be represented in Congress in the same way that it's not, tourists certainly shouldn't be represented in Congress. Well, they're not tourists. They live here, right? I mean, this is one of those things where, like, we could have done it differently. The Constitution could have made this about citizens, both for the census and for apportionment. And it didn't. And when you look back historically, I mean, our notions of citizenship are so much more cemented um, and kind of legalized than theirs were, right? Like they had all these people coming to the country. They weren't uh, they, it's true that they started passing naturalization acts in 1790. So it's not like they weren't thinking about this at all, but it was just a much more fluid, there were porous borders. Like it just wouldn't have made sense, I think, to make these 
clearly delineated differences based on citizenship between people was like just really important to have your hands around like who is where. Now, we could have changed that sometime along the way. But I think that part of our commitment and our value of being a nation of immigrants has always kept these categories somewhat unbounded. And that's been really to our advantage that we haven't tried to set these like really strict lines between people on these bases. And I guess the last thing I'll say is when you Think about representation and, you know, are, do you want to make the argument that people are undocumented um, or, you know, their children, because often, you know, children also can't vote. But do you want to make the, the argument that people who can't vote should ne- never be able to go to their congressional or state legislative representative and ask for something like aren't they st- they're still people right they still have needs so there are lots of undocumented immigrants who live in my city and like i want them to feel like the people the politicians in the city are also answerable to them because they're here and also given in addition to emily's value-based answer given the tradition and the way it's been done Given the reality on the ground, if you don't if you don't do that counting, then you then you have less representation in an area that needs resources and representation to manage a problem. Maybe everybody might agree is a problem, which is to say to have people undocumented rather than documented. But it's nevertheless a thing that exists. To so to shrink resources from that challenge would penalize border states for a condition that hasn't been solved at the national level yet. I mean, that would be the effective result of this, I think. Right, Emily? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I mean, think about like the unemployment benefits for coronavirus. Well, I think that's a different. Well, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, like, they're not going to undocumented people. And so in a lot of communities that have undocumented people or um, people who aren't eligible, there's just more need. So then if you don't allow those people to count for representation of the government, you have even less of a way to to make sure that, like, they're okay and that the social fabric that's holding the community together, the food banks, the government dollars that support social services, like, that they're adequate. Yeah, I mean, I guess I, I guess apportionment seems to me like a, a real bank shot way to do it because it's not as though they, they they may be apportioned to these districts they're not voting in the district so they in fact are not can never be constituents to these they're constituents but they're not voting constituents of any of these elected representatives i mean it's the best so thing it's, we have right because so, like so, otherwise you no, the best thing the best thing we have is to provide unemployment benefits to people who are living in the country like it's much better to 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 attack the problem directly than it is to say like, oh, well, this sort of secondhand, thirdhand way of having them counted for the purposes of a census for how many people are going to represent this particular area, even though they are not even going to get to vote in this particular election or any election is is a is the way to do it. I would say like go at it directly, like provide tuition for people, make it easy for them to enroll in schools, like get, make Obamacare cover them. That's seems more important. Well, right. I mean, I agree with all of that. But I think that taking away any um, representation, even indirect, makes those things less and less likely and possible, right? And so for now, like, given all the barriers to what you suggested, this is like some kind of toehold that those people have in our system. Another thing that's important about the timing change here is that is aren't we in the process of data collection on the census where you're in a 10-yard race, we're in the last yard, which is 
tends to be those people who are the door knocking is happening to get those people who haven't filled out their their census forms. So it's the group that has been left to be counted is particularly uh, likely to be more sort of represented by and associated with the Democratic Party than the Republican Party. Yeah. You know, I also want to point out that businesses rely intensely on census data. Like census data is incredibly rich. It's one of the best sources of information in the world. Like it just matters tremendously for how people decide where to open a restaurant or when to start a business and how to orient their company. There are all these ways in which like Every group, Republican, Democrat, every kind of class is dependent on this data. And so if we make this data, we screw it up. Like it really matters in all these ways that aren't necessarily just about, you know, making sure that like undocumented immigrants um, get counted. Yeah. Hallelujah to that. I mean, I so agree with that. We it is amazing how valuable the census has been to the United States. It's amazing how good the country has generally been at data collection and the use of data and how how valuable that uh, muscle that we have has been for the country. And watching the this administration in particular degrade it is painful because it's also once you degrade it, it's much harder to regain it. So uh, great way to finish this. Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts. And it's really fun to do these Slate Plus segments, and they're really excellent bonus content. John, stop laughing. They, it is fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know, but you said it with all the en- enthusiasm of someone rushing up to get their. Well, I was just thinking about it. I was because my mind was elsewhere, and I was thinking, you know, Slate Plus segments are fun. And Slate Plus members, you get these great Slate Plus segments when you become a Slate Plus member. So I want to encourage you to join Slate Plus and. Get the bonus segments on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts. Go to slate.com slash GabFest plus to become a member today. And we're going to talk about work friendships and work friendships in the time of COVID. We all have a lot to say about work friendships because we are work friends. We will also have an update on my cats, one of whom just jumped on the table here. So go to slate.com slash GabFest plus to become a member today. This episode of the GapFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins, and even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GapFest at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. There's an amazing statistic in Politico this week. According to the Trump campaign, last week they knocked on 1 million doors. The Biden campaign knocked on zero. That's 
zero with one zero in it. The strategy of the Biden campaign, of course, is that Joe Biden is the candidate who takes the pandemic seriously. And you certainly don't want to send strangers to germ all over your screen door by having them canvas somewhere. But it does raise interesting questions about the dynamics of what is a very weird campaign. We're not going to have real conventions. Biden is not going to go to Milwaukee to accept the nomination. There are not rallies, at least not yet. Uh, The president is perhaps scheming to use the White House lawn to accept his nomination. The president is doing other very obvious things to gain a political advantage with funding the Florida and Texas National Guard, but not other National Guards, perhaps warping postal delivery to alter mail-in voting. So, John, you are a great scholar of this. What parts of this campaign seem quite normal to you and what feels very uncharted? Well, the whole thing feels uncharted. I mean, so one thing we we have known is that in-person, in-touch contacts um, can be very powerful in terms of um, locking in votes, in terms of you know, educating people about mail-in ballots, about there are lots of benefits to in-person door knocking. But the question is, in this moment, you've got what you discussed, David, which is when somebody shows up at your house, what signal is that sending you about the candidate's seriousness about COVID? But also, if you're a Trump voter and you and you answer the door, A, if the person's wearing a mask, am I going to be offended because they've made this personal freedom choice with which I occasionally bristle? We've seen that a lot of Trump voters think that mask wearing is a kind of capitulation to a some kind of virtue signaling or, or nanny state. So if the person's wearing a mask, am I going to be uh, uh offended. And then if they're not wearing a mask, am I going to be offended? So I'm not sure that the benefit of door knocking is what it once was. Secondly, the Obama campaign was the you know sort of world's greatest door knocking canvassing operation, both in 08 and then in 12. Much of that operation was then given over to the, and including lots of the same important people, was given over to the, to the Clinton campaign. And it obviously didn't win the day, particularly with the base of the party, which is where door knocking can can really matter. So there are limits to how much door knocking can matter. The disparity that you just talk about, David, is a is a is a considerable one. But I just guess I wonder how much the utility of door knocking matters in this current moment where it is one of many things. Biden just said he's not going to Milwaukee for his convention the debates, what are they going to look like? Many things in this campaign that are vastly different than what we're used to. Emily, the Biden campaign also did announce they're going to spend $280 million advertising in 15 key states, 10 of which Hillary Clinton lost in 2016. Most of that's television, some of it's digital. Do you, so that's just kind of normal. That's just like normal. (laughs) Does that feel I don't know if you've seen any of these Biden ads. They haven't. I guess they haven't started running yet. But there's. I watched a car one yesterday. I don't know if it's TV or online, but it was like Biden does Clint Eastwood. Are you excited to see Biden roll out? And do you think it's going to help him for him to roll himself out? Because he apparently is going to be the face of these ads and they're going to be him talking to camera. I mean, I think he has to do that. He has to define himself and give people an image to think about, um, even with all the negative sort of partisan countering of Trump. I think that's crucial. And, you know, I think the gamble of doing these 15 states is both looking at the polls and seeing that, you know, he's running neck and neck with Trump in places like Ohio. It's also a way of trying to lift up the rest of the ticket, obviously. I mean, you have these Senate races in places like North Carolina and Georgia and, you know, other places, too, obviously, like Colorado and Maine, where it looks 
possible that the Democrats could pull off a victory. And that would be it's going to be so crucial if Biden is elected for the Democrats to have a majority in the Senate. I mean, that will just be of such enormous benefit to him as a president that I think spending money to try to make that happen and give himself coattails if he does win, uh, it makes a lot of sense to me that they would try to do that. But John, what do you think? I mean, I'm sure there's going to be a counter argument. No, no, no. Go narrow. Put all your money into Pennsylvania, Wisconsin and Michigan. Make sure you can pull it out there. Yeah. Don't forget Florida. Um, Well, you know, so yeah. So if you were just Getting up to speed today, you would spend all your time focusing on Florida, Pennsylvania, Michigan and Wisconsin in terms of, you know, we'll talk about this later in terms of election security. But you want to look at those four in terms of turnout, election security and and advertising ads that you run in a kind of blanketed national fashion could in this covid election wash back to voters who are all watching their screens more now, either because they're doing Zoom calls or because they're watching TV more, because they're just all stuck at home. Um, Creating a national atmosphere might have effects in individual states that we don't quite know about yet. So a blanketed campaign that that gets covered as a blanketed campaign and therefore gets into the news shows as well as not just the advertisements, might have some some uh, message to it or might have some benefit to it. So and I'm also fascinated and interested in the in the message, whether Biden really has to define himself or whether he just has to run a bunch of, um, you know, all the norms we loved before ads, which is just, um, you know, uh, kind of what Newt Gingrich said about, um, uh, I guess it was the the 2010. No. No, sorry, the 2006 race, I think it was. For He said basically Democrats should run on the had enough campaign, which is basically, have you had enough of this madness that's going on in Washington? That's less about Biden defining himself and just saying there won't be this madness. I'll restore some norms in America and uh, we'll kind of settle back. So that's less about defining him and just reorienting people with what they believed about America in the first place. I want to get, uh, before we leave this, to your point about election security. I think all three of us believe that in some ways this election is much less about the ideas and and beliefs and and polls than it is about whether we can conduct a free and fair election that people will participate in. And there are different factors that weigh into that. There's the pandemic, the lack of safety people feel about the pandemic, the possibility of foreign interference. I think Frank Ford did an amazing piece about the possibility of very serious Russian ha- electoral hacking of, of state at the state electoral level. And then there's what the president is doing, which is this real rhetorical assault on certain kinds of voting. So Emily, what do you make of the, the president's effort to discredit mail-in voting in states where he's going to be in trouble and to credit it in states where it could help him? I mean, I just think it's incoherent and like noise and I've stopped listening to it. I mean, maybe that's dumb and it's having some impact, but I don't understand how you can say like, go vote by mail in Florida. It's great. No, you can't vote by mail in Nevada. It's terrible. Like it just I don't think it makes any sense. 
I am much more concerned about two things. One is the post office. The post office has now a Trump appointee in full control who's pulling back on services because the post office is running out of money. Whose fault is that? It's the fault of Congress. And having delayed shaky postal services with an election that's going to rely more on vote by mail is just courting complete disaster. Um, it just like makes my hair stand on end to imagine that. Well, can, can, can we... Can we pause for a second? Because the, did you follow yes. the New York case? New York, the New York Democrats just like so they, botched the mail in. Yeah, I mean, from what I understand, part of the problem was that a lot of ballots weren't postmarked. New York tried to send um, absentee ballots with prepaid postage envelopes, and for some reason, those envelopes didn't have postmarks, and so now, and then thousands of them got thrown out because they appeared to be late, even if they weren't necessarily. So that's like its own terrible headache. And it could be repeated in other places. And you can imagine lots of other um, problems with the post office if it has insufficient funding. And there are parts of the country already where there's been a huge slowdown in the mail. Um, So that really, really keeps me up at night. Related to that are some lawsuits going on um, that are in the weeds, but I think are going to be really important in swing states. So in Wisconsin... Democrats and progressive groups are suing to try to extend the deadline for returning your mail-in ballot, again, related to potential problems with the mail or just trying to give people a little more time to return the ballots. And then in Pennsylvania, Republicans are suing on the other side to prevent the state from setting up more secure drop-off boxes so that people don't have to use the post office because drop-off boxes are a great workaround. Like you just go and you put your ballot in the box and you don't have to worry about the post office. It's almost as good as just turning it in at the polling place. It could even be at the polling place. But Republicans are trying to stop the state from implementing their new voting law by increasing access. And so what you see here are these kind of nitty-gritty questions about the scope of enfranchisement, and they could matter a great deal in terms of who votes and how these votes get counted. And I haven't even mentioned signature verification, which I think we've talked about on the show before, but it's like, oh my God. I mean, that was another problem in New York, and it's been a problem in other states like Kentucky, where people make minor errors on their ballots, and then again, they don't get counted. Emily, in Wisconsin, is what they're trying to do is extend the period, as long as you're postmarked by election day, it extends the period that basically they can receive the ballots. Is that right? That's the... Well, it's pretty much right, except weirdly in Wisconsin, there's no postmark mention in the law. So it's just like, yes, basically conceptually what you said was correct. Um, But in Wisconsin, it wouldn't actually turn on the postmark. Although it's very confusing because in the Supreme Court opinion about the April primary, they actually talked about the postmark date as if it were in the law because it's in a lot of other laws. Anyway, basically, this is about whether you have extra time after Election Day so that instead of having the date be um, either a postmark or returning it on Election Day, which some states do have either of those requirements, you would just say as long as it's received within six days, say, of Election Day, it still gets counted. One of the things that seems to me is somebody has to change the dynamic of a delay being a signal of fraud, which the president is trying to make it and make the case that delay is actually, in in many cases, rooting out fraud, checking signatures, making sure, doing the due diligence necessary to make sure that the vote is solid. 
Um, but that takes time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we spend very little time thinking about what happens after elections because we're not used to having these massive mail-in balloting campaigns. But there are states where you're not allowed to start counting the ballots until after Election Day. And the idea is that's to prevent fraud. But that causes a delay. And I actually think this is really up to us, the media. And we've started talking about it. Like Ben Smith did a great piece for The New York Times about this. I've been hearing people on television like... We have to prepare the country. We're not going to have election night necessarily the way we're used to having it. We really are going to have like election week or even month. And that's okay as long as what we're doing is just tabulating ballots. Yeah, John, I, you should tell your bosses at CBS, like, don't just cancel the election night coverage. <laughs> well, just, you know, just go to some kind of random stream that people can check in over the course well, of it, all of November. I mean, I talked to Ben for that piece and the, I'll say what I told him, which is, we should have learned that lesson, you know, ages ago. I mean, in many of the campaigns that I've covered, 1996, 2000, 2016, even 2004, we didn't know on election night. There's plenty of recent history that should make us incredibly humble about what we're actually going to know in addition to the massive uh, challenges that are a part of this campaign. This week, Chicago canceled its hybrid public schools They're going to go all online in the fall. At the moment, New York City is the only big urban system that is committed to opening with in-person classes. But that seems like it won't work. Wait, don't give up on them. Don't Sorry, it seems like it's going to work. It seems like it's going to work. Keep going. It seems like it's going to work. We are joined (laughs) by an indignant Emily Bazelon and also by Juliet Kayyem, who is a professor, a lecturer at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government and the faculty chair of the Homeland Security Project and the Security and Global Health Project at Harvard. She was also a Homeland Security Assistant Secretary under President Obama. So, Juliet, let me just read something that you wrote. The Department of Homeland Security identifies 16 infrastructure areas as so vital to the United States that their incapacitation or destruction would have a debilitating effect on security, national economic security, national public health, or safety. Those sectors include agriculture, communications, electricity, financial services, healthcare, transportation systems, water, and even dams. This official list guides how local, state, and federal homeland security experts spend their time and resources. Bars are not on the list of essential <laughs> sectors, but neither are schools. Yeah. There exactly. was, why did we miss that? Why did people not realize? Why did you not realize I the know. schools belonged up there with water systems and financial services. I know it's, I mean, look, that was a little bit of a confession that we we knew that schools would have to close in pandemic response. And people like me plan for the bad thing. There's lots of bad things that can happen in this country. And pandemic was one that there was planning for and, and the failure to execute on those plans is what we're seeing now by this administration. But regardless of who was in charge, um, if you know you have to shut down schools, there was no plan for national supervision of reopening them. I wrote that piece about four weeks ago when it was just clear that everyone was waking up to the fact that (laughs) September follows August uh, and we had no plan for schools. And so um, it should be a critical infrastructure. We now realize that society cannot function uh, much like it cannot function if the water's out, the electricity's out, the food supply chain is out, um, uh, if, if the schools are closed. And it's not just 
you know, I mean, it's, it's literally not, not just about the parents and our inconveniences and stresses or the kids and what they should learn. It is um, about the economy. You are now looking at an economy that cannot even try to get back to life if parents have uh, kids at home. And the data is now suggesting also uh, for, uh, for obvious, but not, not happy reasons uh, that impact is is falling on working mothers who um, are Goldman Sachs had a had a report this week are more likely than not to in large numbers just entirely leave the workforce for this year. It's just too hard. Juliet, given your experience inside an administration, so okay, it doesn't make the list. But once the once things start going badly, isn't there a system? Don't people who are dealing with emergency response? Yes, you have to deal with the, with what's in front of you. But isn't there, because you've done it before, a moment where you say, "Gee, in a couple of months, some other stuff might happen. We might want to prepare for now because we are neck deep in something that we wouldn't be neck deep in if we'd thought about it accurately beforehand." Like, why didn't that right. kick in? Right, exactly. And, and uh, because the entire process didn't kick in, I'll get a little wonky for a second, how it should have worked is you would have you would have uh, the a White House instead of having this, you know, crazy task force that we are forced to watch every day, would have simply I say simple in the sense not to denigrate how hard this is and the devastation. I just want to say that there were processes in place that would have made it better. You would have uh, so a, a proper response would have invoked what's called a national incident command. You'd have a national incident commander on the federal level. That person would be responding, dealing with logistics, looking at the supply chain, figuring out what plans and policies were necessary. Where's money? What do we have? What do we need? How do I fill that gap? Another part of an incident command is something called the planning division, which is what do I need to be worried about in the future? You have a group of people who aren't in the scrum of response. So you have a group of people that are, you know, truly like, you know, delivering, you know, ventilators and masks to a state. Um, And you have a group of people who are, what should we be worried about next? So you'd be thinking about schools and you'd be thinking about um, voting, right? So this is, you know, healthy voting is going to be the new uh, uh, school reopening debate. And so that's how it should have worked. That process, and I don't, you know, once again, process doesn't solve any everything, but without process, you've got this, you've got chaos. That failure to invoke, to have this 50-state response that we're seeing, uh, that I called the Articles of Confederation right. response, um, is the beginning, you know, is is uh, uh, the ori- there's many original sins, but from a planning perspective, it's the original sin. So that's how it should have worked. You know, and school districts have been thinking about this, but is the federal government going to have policies in place? How will funding work? Um, what are the laws and rules around this? And so you're seeing a lot of creativity. Um, I have to say there is some interesting things like my school district in Cambridge is likely to do K through three, which I do think the data is clear that that if you lose kids K through three in terms of reading and stuff, you're never really going to get them back. Um, dispersed amongst all the schools, and then um, uh, uh, kids with who who need services of the school, who need food, who need to just get out of their house, uh, the high school will be open for them. So I, th- I think that that's actually creative. It means my kids will be uh, home. My high school boys will be home. And that will be true for uh, at least some period of time. Uh, you know, we, we can play with the calendar, but right now, most jurisdictions are not ready. Massachusetts is in great shape and, and look at the decision made. Yeah. So I'm, as listeners know, just like so wrenched about this because I feel like kids have been yeah. paying such a price. Um, and 
I, you know, now I look out at the country, there are lots of places where it seems like schools should not reopen given the infection rate. We're seeing them reopen anyway. We're seeing them having to quarantine or close. That's sending a message to even the safe places like this is really shaky and and may not work. And I feel like what's so important about the points you were making about planning is that there's the lost actual process and then there's the lost trust. So in the small number of states where it seems like reopening could be safely done, you still have to persuade the teachers and the parents that it's safe to set to to be there. And we've spent a lot of time telling people to go home and some of the hardest hit communities um, in cities, you know, especially with the disproportionate impact on people of color, are like the hardest to persuade. And it's really hard to get people, I think, when they see all of this national lack of leadership and chaos to trust even in their local leadership. And yet, the, again, it's like the cost is being borne by the kids. And I don't mean to suggest at all that like we should open cavalierly. It just seems like there are places where it's possible where people are super, super risk averse. Yeah. And I think, I mean, that that's the irony is the jurisdictions that were most risk averse closed earlier, stayed close longer, uh, flattened the curve are also risk averse about opening schools. So the very places where we can try to experiment, I mean, for political reasons and all sorts of reasons, the ones that were most cavalier are just like, okay, let's open them up. Like those pictures from Georgia. You know, I sometimes wonder if, if President Trump had just remained silent on this, on this, on the school issue, we'd probably have more kids in school. I think that loss of trust is because, you know, the president has a tendency to do this, um, is to make every really difficult issue binary, right? So it's like open schools, don't open schools, right? Or, or he did this with, with, um, with reopening, right? It's, you know, uh, the economy or, you know, uh, or, or you don't care about working, working people. It's just, it's, it's just, it's absurd. Nothing about this is binary. We're going to figure out how we get through it. The president talks about like, we're going back. We're not going back. We're people, we are not going back. This is a long time and there's going to be variations throughout jurisdictions. And one of the things you know, from, uh, so I, I advise school districts, I advise corporate, I mean, I do. So here's a way to think about it, right? In terms of the yes, no, it's not binary. It's managing three, I guess it's like three legs of a stool. So what does uh, safe reopening mean to me as someone? So I, so I want to do three things simultaneously. And if I can't do them, I'm not reopening. So one is I want to minimize contact intensity. So there are, so you can think about coming back to school, but there's going to be no sports. There's going to be no chorus. There's going to be no cafeteria. I know the virus well enough now. I know what to do. This is why, why the hell are bars open? And they, they exist for contact intensity. Why honestly are some religious places open? They exist for contact intensity. The second I'm trying to do is manage the number of contacts, because it's just a numbers game, right? And this is what we're all doing at home, right? It's like, if I'm around five people, that's safer than if I'm around 50 or 500. Mm -hmm. um, even social engagements that we're willing to do now, you know, I, I haven't been around more people than six at, at a time that aren't my family members. And then the third quickly is just, you want to maximize the personal mitigation rules for the individuals there. So you, you require masking, you, you have rules around social distancing, you, you, people wash their hands, you, you know, you protect teachers with maybe masking, um, all those things, those three, three things, they're hard, but they're knowable. And I think what the president and the white house and the secretary of education just put it as this binary thing. And so between yes and no, 
I'm at no. I'm at no. I mean, if, if that's my options, right? And so uh, that's the problem. It's very hard to communicate in the political space. That's what we're. That's what we're trying to do. You know, those of us out here who are are doing the management of it. What do you make of the fact that there are places, and this has become a big fight in Montgomery County in Maryland, where the private schools are going to open? Some of them are doing the sort of creative, more resource-intensive yeah. experimenting. You know, I it makes me like ill to imagine that now money determines not the quality of your education, yeah. but whether you go to school or not. But I also wonder if like there are going to be examples in some cities like, yes, it is possible for kids to go to school safely or are people just going to dismiss that because like, oh, those are rich private schools. They don't have anything to do with us. Well, I think um, we can get transmission data, which I do think will be helpful for the public schools. But, you know, you've heard me say enough, unfortunately, um, you know, a crisis hits a nation as it is, not as we want it to be. All the things that are crappy about this nation, access to health care, income inequality, access to good education, get exacerbated. And the, and the hope is we are looking at the mirror and we hate what we're seeing. Um, and so then we can fix it. Juliet, I... I, I this is a little off topic, but I remember talking to you during the BP oil spill. The BP oil spill came out of nowhere. It was not a surprise for which the previous uh, two administrations had plans in place to handle. And yet I remember a rather acute pressure on the president to solve that problem, a problem for which he had no previous expertise. Use that, like reflecting back on that moment of a surprise thing that happened and the fact that it was called Obama's Katrina and his competency was called into question, it's reflect on that with respect to the current evaluation of the incumbent. A president has a way of terrifying staff without being terrible. Um, and uh, I think the President Trump hasn't learned the last part. It was abundantly clear. So there was a a team brought in once it was clear that uh, that uh, that the White House needed to get involved. So that was me and Thad Allen that just sort of, and you know the famous line that he that is well known is you know close the damn well. He knew what the end game was. Everything before the end game was execute. Just just go big or stay home. And that is and that is what we did. And it was horrible and it was miserable and everyone was mad at us. And, you know, there were two different nights. I thought we were all going to get fired. It was horrible. But the measure of success when a president is confronted with something horrible isn't whether you can deny the horrible. You can't deny it. It is whether it is less horrible because of the effort of the federal government or any government for that matter. So the measure of success is not whether oil hits shore. It was going to hit shore. It was whether less oil hit shore because of our efforts. And that I feel very confident in. The second is obviously the politics of it. The president was, there were five governors, all Republican, a young Democratic White House. Uh, three of them were going to run against the president in the reelect. They knew it. We knew it. We knew the overlay of politics. None of them played it during the BP oil spill, not like this. And so you have a president who's distributing resources based on it. The newest story that's coming out today is he is uh, depriving National Guard members of uh, what's called Title 32 funds, um, which is the, federal, the feds pay the National Guard rather than the governor when they're deployed for federal, federal mission in the homeland, um, except for, for two states. Guess which two those are? Florida and Texas. I mean, you've just... 
Like it's like, I, it's sort of mind boggling and like slightly genius in some ways. So those are the two things. And then just the long-term nature of this. Um, I mean, I just think, you know, if you follow me on Twitter or watch, you know, I just, I'm in for the long haul people, you know, I mean, cancel 2020 um, and start to cancel 2021, unless we see uh, numbers that are better. This is the consequence. It's our duty to cancel because, um, you know, we, we are spreaders. And so we just, we just have to individually do what we need to do because the federal government's not doing it. There's an election, of course, in between. All right, Juliet, let's let's close with, on one other issue, which is the yeah. vaccine. So uh, I know in addition to looking at schools, you you think about the vaccine. Talk about what you think the state of the vaccine is and also how do we build the trust that Emily was talking about earlier in the vaccine. I think there's a lot of skepticism about vaccines in this country and there's a lot of skepticism about federal public health advice and the president has created a lot of ambiguity and this vaccine is going to come out quickly what do, what should we be doing to create trust? Yeah, so it's it's great because every I, I even hear it in the school thing where parents will tell me I'm not going back. I'm not sending my kid back to a vaccine. I was like, that's a long time of homeschooling. I'm wary wary of putting too much confidence that a COVID vaccine is going to save us all. So between now and a vaccine, and my arm is stretching very far. Um, uh, the good news is. We're learning. There's lots of good stuff coming on board. There's treatments. We're learning about social behavior that that protects us. We're getting better at identification. None of it is ideals. A lot of it sucks, but it will. It's getting better. So, so if you if the vaccine is far off, don't think we're gonna we're getting you know we're getting smarter. We're getting smarter about social distancing. All we really need to do is respect the virus, which we have failed to do in the past. The vaccine, though, even if identification is right, everything you read from the scientists, it may be only sixty percent effective. And the thing I think is the trust issue is not just, is there a vaccine, but how are we going to distribute it? This is what I, I, we, I was part of the H1N1 response. We had to distribute a vaccine that was new. Who is first is obvious. First responders, healthcare workers, uh, military. Second, third, fourth, and last with a rolling vaccine, assuming you can get your manufacturing and distribution right. That is really complicated logistics. And if you fail in the logistics on this, you fail on trust. So we have to be thinking not just about the smart people who are getting the vaccine, but about about the distribution. Because I think more people will be confident if they feel like the decisions were made, that they're transparent, and that it's competently distributed. At the same time, you know, you have you have responsible people talking about why they trust the vaccine if they do, um, and fighting what's a you know what's a Russian disinformation campaign and a crazy ladies who are anti-vaxxers campaign that are going after this. This is, you know, this is one area where new leadership could take control of this and start it now. But, um, you know, isn't second older people and high risk people and then teachers? Like, how about that? Yeah, I mean, it it might be you just want to process there's there's another, you know, once you get um, the most vulnerable would be sort of anyone over 60. But there's also, well, do you do urban areas first, right? Because it's just sweeping through urban areas. There's a school of thought. I don't agree with it, but it's, it's not crazy people who think younger people uh, because they're spreaders. Um, and so, you know, these 40 and younger who also are active members of the workforce are spending money. I'm not, I don't agree with them. I'm just saying these are not irrational decisions. Smart people are thinking about this. It's just, you know, once again, it's not for want of plans. It's just execution by by uh, this White House. Juliette Kayam, 
Juliet, thanks for joining us. Come back anytime. Thank you all. Talk to you later. Let's go to cocktail chatter. John, when you are back from a hard day of canvassing, actually, that would never happen because you're a a nonpartisan journalist. You would never be out for a hard day of canvassing. But supposing you were a different person who was back from a hard day of canvassing, you settled down with a frosty cocktail, what would you chatter about to the Little Dickersons? I would chatter about um, Isabel Wilkerson's new book, uh, Cast, The Origin of Our Discontents. The origins, I should say, of our discontents. It's, you know, like uh, The Warmth of Other Suns, which she wrote over years and years and years. This is the product of long work, but it feels so vital and written in the moment. Dwight Garner said that, uh, you know, it changes the weather of the person who reads it. And once you read it, it just gives you a frame for looking at the questions of race that are that's just smarter and deeper um, and more provocative. And uh, so I would really recommend it to people. And it's fascinating because it doesn't just look at the hierarchy and the ordering in the United States, but looks at India, the caste system in India and also in Nazi Germany um, as a way to break open patterns of thinking in the way we look at our own society. So I, I've, um, I've enjoyed reading it and, and think it would be useful to people. That sounds great. I was just listening to a podcast about this TV, this Netflix show, Indian Matchmaking. Have you heard about the show? So it's a show yeah. about an Indian matchmaker and uh, to, whose clients are some American, uh, uh, American Indian and some Indians in India and just their huge issues around class and color, skin color that are fascinating. And there was a really good podcast about it. So I'm, I'm, that's the book. I saw that Wilkerson book and I've been excited to read it. My chatter is about a superb podcast I heard this week. It was episode 640 of This Week in Virology. And it is a podcast about virology, but in particular, it was about testing of for COVID. And it had as a guest, Michael Mina, who's a Harvard epidemiologist. And it's a fascinating discussion of why we're testing wrong and how rather than the testing uh, regimen we're using, we, we need a really cheap, very inaccurate tests that cheap and largely inaccurate tests would change the trajectory of this pandemic in a, in a minute. And it was just an utterly fascinating case. I'm hoping we're going to have Mina come on the GabFest because the, the, the 40 minutes of This Week in Virology at the beginning is so good. So check that out. Also, just a quick second chatter. There's a, such a great story. I don't know if you guys saw this, about three men who got marooned in Micronesia when their boat went off course and they were marooned on a deserted island. And so what did they do? They wrote SOS on the sand. And they were seen by a rescue plane and it worked. It was like a New Yorker cartoon come to life. And apparently this actually happens not infrequently. This was not the only example of someone writing SOS on the sand and being rescued. Such a great story. Emily, what's your chatter? My chatter is about a new podcast called um, Deep Cover, The Drug Wars. It's from Pushkin, which was started by our former colleague, uh, Jacob Weisberg. But the podcast, which is super entertaining, is um, by my friend Jake Halpern. And it's just this really great yarn about an FBI agent who's trying to unravel a huge drug smuggling ring. It's about his personal travails as he's 
going all over the world trying to do this, and it just has these excellent characters. So if you're looking for a good distraction from the current state of our world and you want to go back into the 1980s world of FBI agents chasing down drug smugglers, I really recommend this. Um, Again, it's called Deep Cover the Drug Wars. Listeners, you have also sent us uh, really good chatters this week, as you have so many weeks. You've tweeted them to us at Slate GabFest. And this week's chatter comes from Carol Palmer, whose Twitter handle is at Agneta Anderson. And it is about Trek bikes. And she points us to an article by uh, Larry Cantor in uh, Medium about Trek bikes, which is a expected when, when COVID hit for its business to collapse. And all their projections were, oh, business is going to drop 50% just because our supply chain will be screwed because people are going to be locked inside. No one's going to be able to do anything. And instead, they found an absolute record demand for bikes, as have all bike manufacturers. And it's about what happens when you have a sudden unexpected demand for your product and how you adapt. And it's a great business story. It's a great story about a mode of transportation that I love and that, that I'm so glad to see more people using. Uh, and it's a and about a particular uh, entrepreneur who's being really energetic and creative about how to meet the demand for bikes. So check that out. That's our show for today. The Gavis is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Podcast. June Thomas is managing producer. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We will talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? Nice to see you. A quick update, Slate Plus listeners, on the cats. The cats now have had a week here in my new apartment. They're good. They are doing well. They are, you know, they're making home. One of them is lying on the bed behind me. Another one was wandering around. One of them was pawing at the microphone earlier. Um, so uh, they are eating, using the litter box. No, How no affirming. Disruptions. Um, it's been good. And and all the all the advice that I got from listeners was, oh, bring the cats. By all means, bring the cats. Bring the cats. And Because I heard you took the narrative tension out of that Slate Plus segment by announcing that you had already brought them at the beginning. Yes. Well, between the time I'd planned the Slate Plus segment and the time we recorded it, I was just like, you know what? I'm just going to get the cats. <laughs> um, so I'm glad to have them. All right. But that's not what our Slate Plus. Our Slate Plus uh, segment today is about work friendships and the decline of work friendships in an age of pandemic. So many of certainly my closest friends, including the two of you, are work friends, people I've met through work. And I think work friendships are undergoing a huge transition. And I feel like it's a big loss. Uh, so, Emily, any 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 thoughts on the loss of of work friendships or the alteration of them that any good news on the horizon? <laughs> So I think what's hardest about this is that part of what I love about going to work and my colleagues, and I mean, I never went to my office at the Times Magazine every day, but going there sometimes or just seeing people being out and about for work, it's just all the 
accidental serendipitous contacts and conversations you have. Like, you can't plan them. They're not phone calls that you'd make. They're not even Zoom meetings. They're just like you bump into someone and have some moment of connection with them that actually, like, really brightens or matters in your day. And that's kind of irreplaceable. I find myself checking social media more, and I think it's just out of some desperation of wanting some sense of collegiality. But in my brain, it is totally the wrong move. It makes me feel like irritated or left out or something. I mean, once in a while, like, yes, someone says something amazingly funny and it's a perfect gem, but mostly it's either a waste of time or kind of depressing. And I don't really have a good solution for this. Like, you know, you can intentionally make sure to try to talk to people who you have enough of a relationship with where that makes sense. But again, like work generates um, fruitful contacts in the process of work, not because like you decide to have a Zoom cocktail hour. I mean, replacing human contact with social media is just like, I mean, just... (laughs) Why would I ever have imagined yeah, that that was I mean, work? to the extent that Twitter is the therapeutic evacuation of the mental bowels, it is just the most awful replacement for human uh, interaction. I, I, uh, I have found it to be so much more poisonous than when... That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash Plus to become a member today.